Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What is the first brand when you were a young girl that made an impact on you? The first brand that I would say was Afro Sheen. And for the reason of the brand, I had an Afro and I wanted it to shine. And Afro Sheen was, I could spray it in my hair, I could pick it out and have this great, you know, kind of Angela Davis look. And I loved it. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Jerry DeVard, who currently serves on the board of directors of Challenger Brands Under Armour and Cars.com. Jerry is one of the most experienced CMOs on the planet. She began her career in marketing the same year I did, and she has held CMO-type roles at Citi, Verizon, Nokia, ADT, and most recently, Office Depot. Jerry studied economics at Spelman College, joining a long list of notable graduates, and earned her MBA in marketing from Clark Atlanta University before launching her career that took her to nine companies in six cities in three countries. And I have known Jerry for about 20 years, and she has a reputation for many wonderful things, and one of them is for building and inspiring awesome, great teams. We will get into that and so much more. This is my conversation with Jerry DeVard. Welcome, Jerry, to the CMO Podcast. It is amazing you haven't been on yet, so I'm so happy to see you, to host you on the podcast, and I can't wait to get into everything we're going to talk about. But I want to start with this. I'm not sure we've ever talked about this. Do you know that we started our marketing career in the same year? Oh, wow, Jim, you got me. Really? Did we? Yep. And I won't say the year. You can say it if you'd like. (laughs) Okay. You you started with Pillsbury. Yes, yes. I started with P&G in the very same year. And you obviously, you were in the food business. I started in P&G's food business. So we actually not only started the same year, we were competing with each other. And we both stayed there 10 years. Yes, we did. We did. Okay. So I've got one for you then. All right. right. Since you got me with that piece of trivia. Do you remember giving me a travel tip one time um, when I ran into you and I said, where are you going? And you said, I'm headed to this place. Um, And I said, I've never been. I've heard so many amazing things about it. I'll have to go one day. You don't remember. Okay. Was it Patagonia? No. Okay, so now we're going to go around the world with Jim Stengel. <laughs> that was not a fair question. I'll stop guessing. Yeah, right, that's right. We're going to go around the world. Where in the world is Jim Stengel? It was you were on your way to Istanbul, to the Grand Bazaar. And you had been to the Grand Bazaar, not just for that. And I said, I've always heard great things about it. Um, I'm going to go one day. So myself and my entire family, we not only went to Istanbul once, but we've traveled now all throughout Turkey. My daughter is married to a Turk. 
She had her engagement party there and it's one of our favorite places to travel. So I owe that to you because you were so ecstatic about uh, telling me about the country and I now have you know, relatives through marriage there. And we'll have a grandchild soon that will have dual citizenship in Turkey and America. So there you go. So I'm part of your family here. Jerry. You are, Jim, you are. <laughs> I love that. And actually, I do remember that story now that you say it. You know, there, there's a little bit of a lesson in that for a market or two. I think when we were having that discussion, I told you I was going over there to spend a few days with Muslim families. Mm-hmm. because I didn't fully understand how they felt about advertising and brands and what we do for a living. So, of course, I was going over there for business meetings, but I went the weekend before and had a guide, and I just wanted to be with families, mm-hmm. you know, go into their homes and talk to them about what they valued and and what their daily life was like and how they viewed marketing, advertising, branding, international companies. And it's just, uh, those are always so inspiring and they just make you a better person and a better leader. No, they, they do. In fact, my son-in-law is a former executive of Coca-Cola marketing uh, in Turkey. So yeah, it's too many concentric circles around our lives, Jim. I know, I know. Well, we'll get into some of that. Now, I want you to think back. I got you on that trivia that the, we, we started the same year. What was the first brand you worked on at Pillsbury, which later became General Mills? The first brand that I worked on, remember? I will, yeah, I absolutely remember. It was a new product. It was a new product called Milk Break Milk Bars. You ever heard of it? No. No, because it never saw the light of day six months after launch because we got clobbered by General Mills Nature Valley Granola. And it was a long name, Milk Break Milk Bars, a half a glass of milk in every bar. And our positioning was a permission to indulge. So we thought that Granola, while it was very popular, really didn't have all the necessary ingredients that would make you healthy. So we had a healthy approach and it bombed. But I learned a lot on that as a new product launch. And I'll tell you what the best thing was, my leader. Um, He looked at the experience because he had a lot of pressure, obviously. You know, you don't get to do launches that don't succeed. But he said, we've learned something about this and we're going to come back at it and do better. And that started to frame for me how I dealt with what people would perceive as failure. Hmm. I, the first brand I worked on at P&G in food was also one that bombed, but it bombed even more colossally. It was called Duncan Hines Ready to Serve Cookies. And we test marketed it, did really well. We quickly built a factory and we scaled it nationally and we didn't fully anticipate competitive reaction and the impact of direct store delivery versus warehouse. And we got clobbered. And so, but my first brand also was a a learning brand Mm -hmm. and we learned a lot about going into categories where we're not number one and we're not the experts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a a big lesson in humility, which, which for big companies can be a challenge, as you know. It it can be, but you know, it does shape how you do deal with kind of corporate failures or, or when you don't, you know, kind of succeed based upon expectations and, you know, obviously I went on to work on really big brands and, but it always framed that, that first start of, you know, I, what was exciting was it was a new product. And so we had to understand who the customer was. I always say there, there are only two things that you need to know to be a successful marketer, right? I say this all the time, Jim, only two things, guys, what are you selling and who are you selling it to? And typically when you run afoul of expectations, it's one of those two things you didn't quite nail. And in this case, 
for us, it was what we were selling because we knew who we were selling to, but what we were selling, people weren't interested in. And I've kind of used that as well through my career as the lens by which I measure, you know, what we're about to do. Jerry, you stayed at Pillsbury for 10 years. I stayed in the PNG Food Division for 10 years. Can you tell me about how that 10 years, you moved to Minneapolis as a young person out of business school, kind of first big career job. I moved to Cincinnati. What about that 10 years? you know, influenced you as a leader? I mean, the first 10 years of careers are always really interesting. So what did you learn? How did, it, how did it influence you? How is it part of who you are today? So could you talk a bit about that? I love talking about this because what I say, Jim, that book, everything I know I learned in kindergarten, I kind of paraphrase that and say everything I know about marketing, I learned at Pillsbury. Um, it was such an outstanding academy for me around how do you get at consumer behavior? How do you put the consumer at the forefront of what you do? So there were a couple of things that aligned with me that were very, very beneficial. One was um, Leo Burnett was our agency. And I think then they were the gold standard of you know, consumer marketing and advertising and just had the playbook of how you really dissect um, getting people to do what you'd like them to do. I also had some incredible leaders um, and, and I approached it very humbly. And I say that because I watched peers who by bent of where they went to school or what brand they worked on really felt entitled to resources. And so I was the person that would call up R&D and say, hey, I know you guys are busy. I'm working on this project. If you have time, you know, I'd really like it if we could look at some other iterations, but let me know. And here's kind of what I'm thinking, as opposed to me watching my peers saying, look, you know, Jim Stengel needs this and you need to get it out. So and, and it was really learning how to build relationships of power as opposed to title. Uh, and, and that was good. And so and people also were very honest with me about the things that I did incredibly well and the things that I needed help with. And there was a point in my career where I was getting promoted before I even thought about asking. It's like, oh, wow, okay. But then I hit a, a wall and I kind of looked around and people were kind of leapfrogging me. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What's happening here? And I remember summoning the courage to go into my boss and say, you know, look, I, I feel that I'm ready. To, and this, the, the, the step for me was to be promoted to a director. Said, I think I'm ready to be a director. And I see that peers have, you know, and he says, well, Jerry, here are a couple of things that you haven't done well. Um, he said, and I need to see more of that from you. And once you've done that, then we can talk about it. And I said, oh, okay, all right. And as deflated as I was, I went out and I said, okay, so if I do these things, then that represents to you that I'm ready. He said, yes. So I would stand up and do a presentation and I'd come back and I'd be like, how's that? I was like a puppy, like, how was that? How was that? How was that? Um, and he'd say, oh, yeah. not so good. Here's what. But what I learned was that I had to get feedback and I had to be, you know, uh, committed to um, making the changes. So I learned a lot about also, too, it was the first time that I had people reporting to me. And I, I just totally blew that because rather than take the time to teach, you know, subordinates how things should be done, I'd say, oh, you go home, I'll do it. Because it was easier for me to do it mm -hmm. than to yep. teach someone to do it. And so I had to learn the appreciation that leaders need to do two things. You're going to find I'm a two things, three things, four things person. Two things that good leaders need to do, inspire and motivate. 
And how you inspire and motivate is bringing out the best in your people. You have to know that you are not the font of all knowledge. You have to check your ego at the door. You have to see the brilliance in your people and be honest with them and yourselves. So I learned what I was good at, not to fake the funk, what a good leader was, um, how to kind of come back from failure, um, and then also to how to promote myself in a way that was not, you know, patting myself on the back, but letting people know that I was ambitious and wanted to get ahead. Jerry, that was great. Is there anything about marketing in the 80s and early 90s that you miss? Ah, <laughs> yes, of course. You know the answer to that, Jim. Life was so much easier then. You know, first of all, you didn't have 20 ways that people could find you. You weren't constantly on. Like when you left the office, you were done. You know, you maybe checked your voicemail yeah. at the office, but you, this 24-7, you know, access was not there. Um, also, you know, you didn't, we had data, but we weren't in, you know, the internet of things. We weren't really looking at 500 as much as we went through Nielsen data and, you know, shared data and competitive data. It wasn't the, the sometimes the overflow, I would say, the just the bombardment of what you can be considering. So I think that decisions were made easier. I, I also think too, I, I have seen that, I felt that I had more um, responsibility and control over decision-making than, than I had later in my career. That the layers of approval mm. that were needed um, because everyone had access to um, more data and better data and, you know, being in meetings where someone would try and one-up your data, uh, was, it was a simpler time. But, but I would say, having said that, was it easier as a marketer then? Yes, but we are better as marketers now. Yeah, I, agree. I would agree with that. It was really the era of the uh, big TV spot and TV as the uber medium, you know, and the, it, was, it was a simpler life. But, but I agree with you. We, um, God, we, we've become much more, I think, agile mm -hmm. and we've become much more creative than we were back then. That's, mm -hmm. to me, one difference I see. And, of course, the diversity in our organizations is way richer, way more global. You know, back then it was kind of a U.S. business for most of us. Also, too, I think, you know, as I say, we are better marketers. I think we're better marketers, and I would say largely due to social media and really having that lens into what people enjoy, what content they want to consume, and how we can reach them. Yeah. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Listen, this, this is really fun. I want to segue now a little bit into talking about our careers. And, you know, Jerry, we talked about we started our careers in the same year. But listen to the other parallels and intersections. I worked on CoverGirl. You worked on Revlon. We both worked in Europe. We were on the ANA, the big trade council. We were on the board of directors together. Right. I was on the board of Motorola right. when you worked at Verizon and Nokia. <laughs> you started your own consulting business for a while. I did the same. And you were one of the few marketing ex executives who successfully transitioned to board work 
on several public boards. And I did the same, serving on two boards. So it's really interesting. So I know we could go so many directions. I've known you for about 20 years. And it's hard to think about even where to start. And I think where I'd like to start is what in that really interesting career was the most defining experience for you? Your career took you to so many different cities, so many different locations, so many different companies. So what about that was the most defining? You talked about your interesting first 10 years at at Pillsbury. What beyond that? I think the most defining for me was working for great leaders. I mean, there is no amount of emphasis that you can put on how great your career is based upon working for a great leader. Now, everyone's probably going to have a a different definition of what a great leader is, but but I'll tell you how I define great leaders and and from someone who reports, would be reporting to this leader. And then I'll talk to you about what I think an individual has to be. I, I talked to you about inspiring and motivating, but I think it's three C's. It's courage, conviction, and commitment. And so when I'm working for someone that has the courage to do what's right, despite all of the you know um, other points of view or the difficulty of leaning into what's right, um, you know, zigging to the left when everyone's on the right. I appreciate that. I love that. I love courage. I love it when people square their back, um, straighten their shoulders, and lean into what's going to be difficult, right? Um, and so, so, but commitment, commitment to what we believe is the right course of action. That you may stumble. I mean, as marketers, we see this all the time. We'll get a commitment from leadership around spend or a campaign or a tactic or a strategy. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're into it for a short period of time and it's not working out. So, you know, courage and confidence are, are go hand in hand. Um, uh, to stand up in front of the organization and uh, let, you know, the team know that this is kind of our path forward, that here's how we're future-proofing the organization. Here's what we're going to do to make a difference and allowing the team to do that. And so I have done and been really appreciative. There there are people in my career like Bruce Gordon when I worked at Verizon, who was just an outstanding leader. And and I I learned so much from him about how to support, how to challenge, how to be honest when you need to be told that something isn't going well, um, and how to build relationships. Bruce knew the name of everyone in the mailroom and everyone in the boardroom, right? He was the president of Verizon and had been there a long time, but he was like an oracle. Everyone followed him and loved him. And you were, it was just such a great thing to work for him. You know, those are leaders that everybody really wants to work for. And then the leader that you get. Um, and I was fortunate to, to work for him being a great leader. Uh, and I also think about some terrible leaders that I've had that I will remain nameless, but they didn't have courage. They didn't have conviction and the commitment wasn't there. So many leaders are trying to please someone, the board, the, the you know, peers, partners externally. So you have to be very clear on what it is you're going to do and the role that you want your team to play. So the thing that stuck with me more, because I think that the competency around how to be an excellent marketer, we learn that and, and we get to the roles that we have because we've demonstrated that we can drive a business top line and bottom line. So then it's all the what we used to call soft skills around how, do people want to work with you or is there followership? 
Are there things that you do that are very clear that people feel can see themselves being a part of? And, and as we're evaluating that, I, I want to say one thing that I think is interesting that we're all thinking about now. I'm sure you've heard the story, Jim, that people would say around hiring when they'd say, you know, I kind of hire people. Would I want to take a cross-country trip with them? Would I want to, you know, walk on the beach with them? And so we were always talking about cultural fit. And I think what we've evolved to now and hopefully is that we're looking for cultural ads, like what's missing? Like, what do we need to bring the team in? And so, you know, many times I've been a cultural ad as the only woman, as the only African-American. And, and you know, I've, I've always been very kind of outspoken. I mean, what you see is what you get. And, and so I've gone into organizations that wanted that, that didn't want you to rubber stamp, um, that wanted that marketer that was going to be honest about what wasn't working. Because I've always been a performance marketer too. I've, I've not been one that you know was more about creating ads. It was really about how are the dollars that we're spending that great ad? What is it doing? What's the ROI? How many people? Are we driving share. So that was a way for me to protect the dollars that I had by demonstrating how hard they were working, or in some cases not working, and what the plan was. So for me, it's just been how do you navigate this rare air that we're in um, as CMOs. To, uh, to build better leaders uh, that come in behind us. I want to get into, you, you brought up a lot of stuff there, a lot of really good stuff. I want to get in, I want to get in at first to this CMO area. Uh, you, you, you have been a, you've had a CMO role or a CMO type role at Citi, Verizon, Nokia, ADT, and for the last three years, Office Depot. So you're about as good as it gets on what makes up a CMO. What makes for an excellent CMO? What are the characteristics? What is the work? What are the capabilities? What are the KPIs? So a lot of our listeners are young people who are aspiring to be CMO, and some are CMOs as well. So I would love you to share your insight, Jerry, and your wisdom from these amazing roles you've had at very different kinds of companies about how can someone listening to this sharpen their skills and become an excellent CMO as you have been. Well, thank you, Jim, for those kind words. Uh, I would say, and I think many people would say this, I've listened to your podcast, you certainly learn more from your failures than any success. And what I've tried to do is help people and show them where the landmines are so they don't step on them. So the first thing you know, um, I say is know yourself, know what you're good at, and know what you're not good at. Don't fake it. Like, like lean into the things that you know you do very well, your superpowers, and have that on display. Um, and not in an obnoxious way, but in a way that demonstrates to the organization what your skill set is. So again, don't sweat the things that you don't do well and say, oh, I got to fake it or I got to try. Like do the things that you do well. As we say now, it's like, do you. <laughs> do you and do you well. The next thing I would say is that it's really important. Do not underestimate the ground in which you are planting your fertile seed. So when you're talking about aspiring CMOs, you have to be in an organization where your makeup, your DNA, your presentation is one that is going to be valued, rewarded, and, and nurtured. So let's assume that you're in the right place. You understand what you do well. It's working fine for you. And it's now just about getting ahead. The next level of kind of getting you over the hurdle is relationships. It is that who is in the room when your name comes up and what is said. 
And can they champion you as the person that can drive the organization? So sometimes what I did was I walked into an organization and, and this was earlier in my career because one of the things that you learn joining different organizations is how you onboard yourself despite what the playbook is. But early in my career as I joined an organization, I would say, oh, this is like riding a bike. I know how to ride a bike. I'm just going to hop on this bike and start pedaling as fast as I can. And then somewhere along the road, you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is a mountain bike. I don't think I know how to ride a mountain bike. Let, let me step back. And, but by that time, you maybe made some mistakes. So some of those mistakes were assuming that my peers were all in alignment with what my purview was, what my you know, job description was, and what I was hired to do, right? That, oh, okay, well, everyone's aligned. They're happy that I'm here. Uh, and then you find out, well, no, that's not the case. So you do have to understand within the peer set who, you know, who's for you and who's against you and how do you overcome that, those objections and how do you let them see who you are? One of the things I used to do all the time was when I met with peers, uh, I would go to their office, right? So there wasn't any hierarchy. I'm, I'm going to come to your office. And I'd always say, I have no agenda other than to make this company successful. So it was really important that way. The other thing that you have to do, and this is maybe for those in the C-suite in, and they, they know that, you got to be, you know, have a good relationship with the CFO, not just the CEO, right? I, I've worked for the CEO for the past four jobs I've had. Um, the CEO has hired me, so that was, you know, uh, understood. But the CFO really is there as a, you know, the watchdog of dollars and is going to be asking a lot of questions about what you're spending and how. Some people see that as intrusion. I saw it as an opportunity to sit down and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what we're expecting from it. This is how it's going to you know, deliver results. Um, and I'd like more of that. But if you don't think so, what do we need to do? So that partnership is really important. Um, and then I think that the, the, uh, the, the critical thing is the team that you build. The team that you build and looking at your team and saying, does my team represent diversity? Do have I, you know, everyone points the finger and says, yes, somebody ought to do something about that. But I always say when you point the thing, the thumb, or thumb is staring back at you. What am I doing? What am I doing? How am I leading as an example to demonstrate that, that I value diversity, I reward diversity, and I nurture diversity? That's, a, that's about as good as I've heard it said, Jerry. Um, and, that's a, and that's an aspirational job description by the way, and a pragmatic one. Uh, I, I want to ask you about the CFO relationship for a moment because it's, uh, there's some re new research out there from LinkedIn about the problematic relationship between CFOs and CMOs. And the key insight is often CMOs don't learn to speak the language of the CFO and to get into the CFO's head and to see the world or at least be empathetic with the CFO about how they, what their remit is and how they're seeing the world. How have you managed, you've built a great relationship with CEOs. We talked, how have you managed to get on the same page with the CFO? Well, I, I actually say that that's what my intent is. I say, I want to partner with you. I mean, you know, you show me a broken relationship between a CFO and a CMO, and I'll show you a very frustrated CMO because, you know, um, like it or not, they control the purse strings. And the CFO doesn't give a rat's ass about whether or not you've got a great commercial, whether or not you've got a great campaign, whether or not you've got a great event, whether or not you've got a great post. It's like, what is it going to do? 
And so the language that CFOs speak about is talk to me about the return. Tell me why I should give the money to you rather than CapEx. Tell me why I should give it to you rather than, you know, hiring another, you know, sales associate. I mean, so you have to frame this in the terms of performance and, and what these dollars are doing to drive what those agendas are. Now, you have to be clear on what's important to your CFO, right? And so you ask, what's important to you? How do you measure success? Yeah, how am I? How are you going to evaluate the job that market? Because it's not you; it's the marketing team. Here's the other thing: you are the face of marketing, and so everything that you do or don't do impacts your team. You know, crap rolls downhill, and and your team can see if you're kind of on the right wavelength because that that chatter is really strong, and um, you can't ignore it. You know, and 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 if you haven't had a good relationship, it's kind of like I've been married to the same guy for. 38 years. I'm very lucky to have married, found a great guy when I was very young and not even thinking about being married. But you know, what you have to do is that if it's, if it's not working, it doesn't mean that you can't fix it. And you say, you know, look, as I look back at what we've been doing, um, maybe I haven't shared as much. You know, there were, in some cases, there were, I felt like there were proctology reviews of what marketing was doing, right? Everyone was, you know, I always say, I would joke with my CFOs, I don't tell you how to close books at the end of the month, but everybody wants to tell you, how to spend your marketing dollars, right? Everyone's got a point of view about how it can be done better. Uh, and so there, you have to develop a bit of a thick skin about that. You also have to have consensus with your CEO or your CFO on when you're going to be able to make the call, because if you're not making the calls, the 5149, then that's another frustration. And then you're, you're a victim. And I always say victims are either unwilling or unable to change their circumstances. And the last thing you want to be as an effective CMO, as a victim of someone else. So you have to have that clarity around when you get to make the call when others dissent from think is right. Yeah. Jerry, I do want to, before this, we get too, too far into this podcast, is I do want to talk about uh, board work because, you know, you're an exception in this space as well. Very few marketing, senior marketing people serve on boards. There's, there's rich data on that. And far fewer senior marketing people who are people of color serve on boards. So why is that and how can we change it? You are, by your example, you're serving on two boards now and you've served on se several others in your career. Mm -hmm. How we change that is by being impatient with the results that we have now. And when I say impatient, that means you have to speak up. That you know, this, this whole kind of self-evaluation that we've been going through when we talk about racial inequity and structural racism and systemic bias and white privilege, um, we've asked ourselves a lot of questions. And, you know, um, Dr. D'Angelo in her book, White Fragility, uh, uh, one of the boards that I serve on, um, did a, uh, had her, invited her in to do a presentation. And it was outstanding when she talks about you know, the structure of how we've all lived with this and accepted it. And she asks you questions like, okay, everyone wants to say, you know, of course I'm not a racist. Of course not. This is okay. Where did you live? You know, did you live in a neighborhood where there are other, you know, where the people of color that lived in your neighborhood when you were growing up? Where did you go to school? What she starts out by saying is people say, I don't see color. I was raised not to see color. Oh, okay. All right. Let's, let's get into that. You know, who did you go to school with? Where did you live? What did your wedding look like? And so it's been interesting. So I say all that to come back to 
have I done enough? As an African-American woman, have I done enough? And I say, no, I haven't, because I have heard things and let it slide. I have known that people were not supportive of diversity goals and not called them out. Um, and so I say that, you know, as much as I've done, because I have called it out, I could have done more. And I think that when it comes to, if you're in an organization and you have no blacks in leadership, don't, or no Latinx, don't make the people of color be the ones raising the flag. You can. Why don't we have blacks and Latinx in the C-suite or Asians or, you know, why isn't there diversity in the C-suite? Why isn't there diversity on our board? I think you have to ask that question. And I think so many times people say it's somebody else's problem. It's like, yeah, that's bad. That's awful. But what are we doing? And that's that whole thing about allyship. In terms of being on boards, um, I think the best thing to do is to be really, really good at what you do and have that recognized so that when people are looking for, you know, skill sets in organizations that people have made a difference, that your name comes up, that you are having conversations with people that are substantive, that the, you know, everything isn't an elevator, isn't an elevator pitch. But a lot of conversations are elevator pitches. And people walk off and they go, wow, that, that Jim Stengel, he's got a good point of view. I think that my friend or my board or my organization could use that. And, and that's, I think, you know, uh, the first board that I served on was actually a surprise to me. I, I, you know, someone told me early on when you get a call about a job, you, you don't ask who, who, who gave you my name because you're supposed to think that, of course, someone gave you my name. But I was shocked. There is this sense, though, that uh, search firms do tend to go to the vetted ones, ones that have served, you know, overall, all board directors that have served on boards to get more. I think the aperture of that is opening up where now you don't need, you know, I always think about that movie, The Devil Wears Prada, where uh, Meryl Streep, as Anna Wintour says, is it so hard to find a fashionable astronaut? <laughs> I mean, people are looking for things and you're like, well, wait a minute, but but this person has the skill set and the right thinking skills and can help that organization. So I think it's opening up. Um, and I think that marketers especially, because you're not going to find a company that is not going to say that the customer or the consumer is at the center of what we're doing. If, if they don't say that, run. But given that that's where why most people are in business, marketers have a particular acuity in being able to deliver that and speak that language. What have you learned about being a productive and useful and, and great board member over your various assignments? I mean, right now you're on Under Armour and Cars.com, really interesting companies and brands right now, but you, you are an experienced board member now. So what have you learned that others could benefit from about being a really great board person? I, I think for anyone, you know, it's kind of like once you, the dog catches the car, now what? You know, you go through this, you establish your career, then you establish that you want to join a board, then you get on the board, and then it's the first meeting, now what? Do I speak? Do I listen? How do I weigh in? It's like double dutch. When do I jump in? Um, what I've learned is that you get to work with some really amazing people. Um, and you learn, so I've learned so much from board members around how they think, around how they bring their perspective, and, and around how companies are different as a result of them being there. Because the issues that come to the boardroom are really meaty and heavy. And you can see how board members weigh in because we're all a function of the experiences that we've had. And I've just been so privileged to sit in rooms with people that are really smart and sharp and have good instincts and are the consigliere 
to the board, you know, to the CEO or the chairman, you know, um, uh, Kevin Plank likes to say, choose your board, use your board. And, and he's right about that. Mm -hmm. And, and so you can look at the quality of issues that are brought to you. Um, you know, Alex Vetter, the CEO of cars.com, um, is very open about the issues that he's struggling with. And in some cases, it's the only place that you can be open. And so you talk about, okay, here's my point of view. I'd like to hear how you think. And I see how, you know, board members weigh in and we end up at a much better place uh, than where we were with, you know, uh, only one perspective, which is why it's so important to have diversity of thought and experiences in the boardroom on such heavy issues of future-proofing um, and being a great place to work. Jerry, we could go for a few more hours, but I do want to build a, a fair amount of time into the end of this podcast for my lightning round, because I just want to get your perspective on so many interesting issues and questions. What was your favorite course at Spelman College? Hmm. My favorite course at Spelman. Well, you know, my favorite course at Spelman was just learning who I was as a young black woman. Um, I started out as an engineering major at Spelman. It was a dual degree program they had with Georgia Tech. Failed miserably, Jim. Did not like any of the engineering courses. Um, you know, first didn't go to class. And then when I went to class, I was like, they are speaking Greek. I don't understand it. But I went there because I had a fantastic scholarship. It was, they were looking for, you know, black women and to go into the sciences and my grades were good enough to get a scholarship. So I said, okay, I'm going to be an engineer, much like when you're a kid and you're going to be a nurse or a doctor or a policeman. Um, and so I became an engineer, you know, I was going to be an engineer, but I hated it. And, you know, I went a full year. Um, and then in the second year uh, that summer, I had to tell my mom, I'm going to change my major to economics because engineering isn't working. And I remember the difficulty that I had in saying, I'm going to have to give up all my scholarships for engineering and hustle hard. Um, because I want to do something else. So the courses that I enjoyed uh, were ones that, that had, you know, uh, an element of humanity to it, uh, where we brought in the culture of whatever it was we were talking about. And so my four years at Spelman College were formative for me, because everywhere I looked, there was someone that looked like me in a leadership capacity. And the sky was the limit there. You know, there's a song that Spelman Knights sing. And the lyrics go something like, it's my choice and I choose to change the world. It's my choice and I speak with pride and courage. I'll be the change I want to see. I'll scream out loud and say, it's my choice and I choose to change the world. And those are lyrics that you hear over and over again. So the women that walk through those gates are infused with confidence and courage and take on the world. And that's what, that's what I learned. It's an incredible alumna list. And I'd like to, to hear from you, who is the most inspiring alumna of Spelman College? Oh, wow. The most inspiring. There's so many. I, I, have, to, I have to give you a bucket. So one okay. of them is Yvonne Jackson. Um, Yvonne Jackson was the board chair of uh, Spelman College. I, I joined the board. I was on the board of trustees for nine years. Yvonne Jackson, former head of HR for Burger King, board, ser served on several boards. But Yvonne, had that kind of confident but quiet leadership. She was, she is an amazing, smart, kind, wonderful leader. And I learned so much about her of quiet, quiet power. Um, she's an icon. I look at Latanya Jackson, you know, the actress, uh, and Latanya and her feisty, talented, 
skill set on being on Broadway and being on TV, but being a fierce alum of Selman College and wanting to do more for the fine arts department, for the fine arts building. She and I did a fundraiser for Spellman where we raised over $2 million, but, and that was net. But LaTanya drove that focus on us making money um, and, and making sure that people understood why Spellman? Why, why a predominantly Black all-female institution in this day and age? Can't, can't you go anywhere? Why that? And so we answered that question. I think of Roz Brewer, Roz, who was the CEO of Sam's, um, and now COO at, you know, at Starbucks and, 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 and chair of the board of trustees at Spelman College. As busy as she is as a mom, a wife on the board of Amazon, um, she finds time to give back to our beloved alma mater because, you know, it's a chip that they install in us when we leave. And, and that chip gives you a sense of obligation to give back your time, your treasures, your talent, um, and, and everywhere around you look, there are just Kim Davis. Kim Davis, who was at, you know, for a long time, J.P. Morgan Chase, and now is at the NHL. A few African-American women, I don't know of any African-American women at the mm-hmm. NHL, is an EVP. I, I really could go on and on. There is a cadre of outstanding, and I count all of these women as my sisters. And when you see a Spelman woman, she is your sister and you embrace her. I'm glad I asked that question. No, really. No, it's, it's very powerful about leadership and mentorship and a sense of purpose. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a powerful institution. So I'm glad I asked that question. And the thing about each of them as, as outstanding and amazing women that they are, um, that all goes out the window when you're talking to them. The- yeah, sure president of our college, uh, Dr. Mary Campbell, outstanding leader, um, has done amazing things for Spelman College. And so we're lucky to continue that legacy um, as a premier HBCU uh, and continue to make our ancestors proud about what we're doing and what we will continue to do. Jerry, I have two final questions for you. You've been with your family for a few months. You've been talking about all sorts of things. You've been talking about Black Lives Matter. We spoke about that a little while ago. The New York Times says this is the largest movement in U.S. history. So I'd like to hear you talk a bit about how you, are you hopeful that this will have a sustained impact on business, on society, on politics, on our leadership? So I'd like to get a sense of how you're seeing this and how your, how your family is seeing this? What's the nature of the discussions? So I am in the camp of being hopeful and optimistic, and not just because that is my nature, that you know I'm a glass half full person, but I see the signs. I see the quality of the conversations that companies are having, right? And, I, and I've been on the phone with a few CEOs outside of the board work that I've done, that I've had relationships with that have called me, that you know, in that cone of, okay, who do I know that I can have a, a non-judgmental conversation about what I'm trying to do and how I'm trying to shape this organization and what more I do? Um, I also think about a, a dear friend of mine who called me, who's a senior executive at a company and said, she was actually in tears. She said, I talked to my CEO, and she's white. I talked to my CEO and he said, you know, I think we've done enough. I think we're doing enough. There's no need for us to, to jump into this fray. And, and she was just so disheartened by that. 
because there was so much more that she felt that could be done. And so I'm hopeful because I know that the conversations around Black Lives Matter and the measurement of how, you know, walking the talk, the action plan. So, you know, everyone can say, yes, it's important, rah, rah, rah. But I am seeing the signs of things changing around the commitments that CEOs are making to their teammates, their organizations, around how more and more organizations are tying compensation to the achievement of those goals. So I'm fortunate enough to serve um, on boards where that is an actuality, you know, where they are leading in this space as opposed to talking in this space. So I would, so, to all those people that say, yes, it's important and here's what we're going to do, I say, okay, follow the money. Are your executives' compensation tied to the achievement or the non-achievement of those? So I'm seeing more and more of that happening. I'm also seeing the interest recognizing white privilege, white, white supremacy, systemic inequity, and looking around and saying, yeah, you know, we looked the other way, but are we actually saying our C-suite and our boards look like that because there are no talented Blacks that can assume that role? Are we finally ready to recognize how many people have been blocked because of racism, because of bias, because they did not look like, act like, sound like me? And so the more we continue to push, and again, I, I want, as much as I'm doing, I need to do more. And I will not rest until I've done more um, because I, I see it as an obligation. For me, it's not about what I achieve, but what I can help others achieve. And I've met too many talented people. I've hired too many talented people of color. And, and so I can push where others can't, but I, we need allyship. So I think the allyship is growing of people that say, yes, I'm going to stand with you. I'm going to you know, make a difference where I am and I'm going to challenge the notions and I'm going to dig a little deeper and I'm going to make myself accountable. And at the end of the day, say, how am I measuring myself on matrix? Because it's no longer someone else's problem. It is our problem. And we've looked the other way too long. It was like we got used to living next to the railroad tracks and we didn't hear the train coming through. And when we looked in the boardroom and didn't see any people of color, it was like, it was okay. And now, no. And so I believe, and, and I, I will die, you know, trying to have significant evidence, not just words, but significant evidence of the changes that can and will be made. Jerry, thank you for that. And I have one final, final question. Who would be helpful and interesting for you to hear on the CMO podcast? Who else should we invite in these times? How about the CMO of BET and how they are dealing with, you know, content and audience uh, in what could have been perceived as a predominantly black audience, but it's not, and how they are leveraging and managing the message, you know, um, you know, there's a saying in the black community that, you know, everyone wants, everyone wants to be, you know, wants a uh, black entertainment, black sports, you know, black culture, but doesn't want to be black. And so how do you, you know, take that and make that, you know, something that is um, positive and powerful and shared by all on such a, a big platform uh, of BET as part of uh, CBS Viacom? That's a great idea. And I know that team for many years at PNG and beyond that. So it's, it's a wonderful idea. We'll do that. Good. We'll do good, that. Good. So thanks for that, Jerry. And thank you for just a wonderful inspiring, insightful, optimistic, and warm interview. This has been wonderful, Jim. I'm, I'm so happy that we did this. And I, I look forward to seeing you again somewhere sometime soon. 
That was my conversation with Jerry DeVard. What I loved about this one was really the intensity and positivity of speaking with Jerry about how she is seeing the future. I loved how she talked about her mentor, Bruce Gordon. I loved how she talked about Spelman College and people who inspire her who are graduates. And I loved how she talked about her hope for the impact of Black Lives Matter and how it feels different, but it's up to us to make it happen. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.